My task in, in the, the next few minutes, I guess, is to try and maybe broaden out some of the debates that we've had in the last couple of days, and particularly to look at these questions of amnesty and accountability in the context of, of Central Africa. And for the sake of time, I'm actually going to reduce the presentation just to looking at, at, at Rwanda and Uganda. But if there's any interest in Congo, we can probably pick that up in, in the Q&A. And the analysis I'm going to give here is based very much on my own fieldwork in Central Africa. I've been doing fieldwork for about eight years now. Uh, in relation to Rwanda and Uganda, I've conducted about 700 individual interviews with all manner of participants in transitional justice processes. So the analysis here is very much the result of, I guess, an ethnographic and also a political analysis of the way that transitional justice has emerged in Rwanda and Uganda, and also a sense of what the impact is. And what I want to do is, is use these two cases to try and wrestle with some of the greater or wider theoretical uh, debates that we've been engaged in, in in this event. And in particular, I want to critique, I guess, this, this notion of there being a justice cascade. I, I want to express, I guess, a profound scepticism that we actually are seeing this kind of international norm diffusion in relation to individual criminal accountability. And also I want to critique how important what we might call international norm entrepreneurs are in the so-called diffusion of these ideas. And I think these are two central concepts within the wider concept of the justice cascade. And I want to do four things in particular uh, in this presentation. I just want to give some very brief background to the conflicts and also the transitional justice processes that have been used in Rwanda and Uganda. And I'm going to keep that very, very short. And then I want to highlight, I guess, three major problems with these, these ideas of, of international norm diffusion around uh, uh, criminal accountability. Um, I want to argue that I don't think that the spread of norms of accountability has been anywhere near as linear as, as some scholars have suggested. I also think there's been an enormous amount of domestic innovation in accountability that has often happened in opposition to the types of international norm entrepreneurs <clears throat> that we might be talking about. And finally, I want to say also that I think there are some significant problems with the way that international norm entrepreneurs to date have gone about their work in these two particular countries. So just a little bit of background to the conflict and also transitional justice in Rwanda and Uganda so that we sort of know what the, what the context is here. In Rwanda, of course, we're talking about a post-genocide society, which is recovering from the 1994 genocide, in which something like 500,000 to 800,000 innocent civilians were systematically murdered in the space of only 100 days. And I think what's crucial in understanding the Rwandan genocide, and it's important when we talk about transitional justice, is that this was a very intimate form of violence. The genocide in Rwanda was intimate in the sense that the perpetrators and the victims knew each other extraordinarily well. And also the form of violence that was used in Rwanda was very intimate. This was a genocide of hand-to-hand -hand combat. This wasn't some large-scale bureaucratic killing. This was killing with basic instruments, basic implements that people would have had to hand. Machetes, hoes, spiked clubs, etc. And in response to the genocide, Rwanda essentially has taken what we might call a three-tiered approach to accountability. We have the UN War Crimes Tribunal for Rwanda, which is located uh, in Tanzania. 
We have the conventional Rwandan national courts, and we also have a process called Gachacha, which is a series of about 11,000 community courts that are spread right, right across the Rwandan countryside. And in relation to Uganda, we're talking about a society that's recovering from a more than 20-year civil war between a rebel group called the Lord's Resistance Army and the Ugandan government. This is a conflict that's involved thousands of murders, acts of torture, and also the forced displacement of nearly two million northern Ugandan civilians at the hands of, of their own government. One of the key elements in the Ugandan conflict has also been the LRA's tendency to abduct children and to second them to the rebel ranks. And, and, and what's crucial here is that we've seen widespread massacres and widespread atrocities committed by child soldiers, and, and the issue of children is going to come up again in, in just a moment. And Uganda really has tried the full spectrum of transitional justice options. I'm going to talk about this in much more detail, and, and Louise has already alluded to this, that Uganda has used an amnesty law that's been in place uh, since 2000. It's also used various forms of accountability through the national civilian courts and also the military courts. Increasingly, there is a debate about the use of community-level rituals to try and deliver some degree of accountability, and I'll talk about those as well. And of course, as has already been mentioned, Uganda has experienced the intervention of the International Criminal Court, which, which skews many of these debates. So that's the kind of broad framework that we're talking here. Genocide in Rwanda, a civil war uh, in Uganda, and a whole range of different approaches uh, to transitional justice used in the two countries. So let's take those two examples and let's sort of put them up against the picture of accountability that we get if we look at it through the justice cascade. The first thing that I think we see here, and I guess it's the first problem that, that we may want to unpick in, in, in terms of Sicking's ideas and others who've also adopted this kind of cascade metaphor, is that if we look at Rwanda and Uganda and the way that transitional justice has actually been done, we see that this is anything but a linear process. I think there's often been a tendency in some of the literature to see the spread of, of norms of accountability as being some sort of teleological process that there's a kind of inevitable moving towards particular and often quite predictable outcomes. There's a, a very clear trajectory that I think is being expressed here. And it strikes me that perhaps this tells us a lot about how the field of transitional justice came to be. This was a field of advocacy and, and latterly more uh, scholastic that grows out of the period of democratization theory, modernization theory, you know, notions that societies were supposed to evolve and develop in particular ways. And often it was the role of outsiders to try and catalyze processes in, in that direction. And I'd be interested, again, I guess, to come back to some of the things we were talking about this morning, to get a sense of, of how important that is, particularly in the Latin American context, which ultimately is the context in which this kind of field of transitional justice really got its momentum. And I think it is that Latin American experience that influences this field profoundly head, heading forwards. But I think we see some different things going on in, in Central Africa, and, and, and that's really what I want to try and show here. And in short, I think the experience of Central Africa is that transitional justice has been a very different kettle of fish. I think this has been much messier and much more unpredictable than, than perhaps some of the broader theoretical discussions would, would, would suggest. <clears throat> 
if we look at Rwanda and the way that transitional justice debates emerged there, if we look at the way that policy making actually happened, we find that this was an extraordinarily unpredictable process. For seven years after the genocide, the Rwandan government wrestled with this question of what on earth to do with the situation that they found themselves in. Here was a country that had experienced wide-scale devastation, that had so many perpetrators and so many victims on their hands, and also in a situation where the judicial infrastructure had been almost entirely destroyed. And the government knocked these questions backwards and forwards for those seven years, what on earth to do? Now, one of the very first things that the Rwandan government explored was the possibility of an amnesty. And this was very popular in, in the late 1990s in Africa, largely because of the experience of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that, that this was how you did transitional justice. Maybe you asked for some degree of the truth, you gave an amnesty to those who were considered responsible for the atrocities, and the hoped outcome was reconciliation. Well, in the context of Rwanda after the genocide, the view, certainly within government circles, was that wasn't the way to do things. There was a real sense, particularly from Tutsi survivors and the Tutsi government of the day, that some degree of accountability was required, specifically in the form of punishment. And this became a very, very important theme in those, those government discussions. But over those seven years, what became clear was that this was a very fractured government that was made up of all forms of, of, of factions and fissures and subgroups who disagreed with each other fundamentally on key questions of what a reconstructed Rwandan state was supposed to look like and specifically what justice should, should entail. There was a division in Rwanda between lawyers and non-lawyers. There was a division between urban elites and rural elites. And crucially, there was a huge gap between those who had fought against the genocidal government, so those within the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the rebel group that captured control of Rwanda in 1994, and a group of elites that came back to Rwanda after the genocide from the diaspora. These groups all had very, very different views of what transitional justice should entail. And it was only at the end of that seven-year period of very, very messy debate that Rwanda decided to use the Gachacha Community Courts as the kind of centrepiece of the transitional justice process. So this, you know, quite, I guess, uh, ad hoc process that had been used right across Rwanda to, to resolve day-to-day -day disputes was codified and then rolled out to 11,000 communities. So Gachacha exists in law, it's codified within the national criminal system, but it also involves the mass participation of everyday Rwandans. And you'll see in your conference packs that there's propaganda about my new book on Gachacha that, that, that hopefully some of you might, might read down the track. But what's also important to say at this point is that, is that President Paul Kagame, who's still in charge in, in Rwanda today, has opposed Gachacha since day one. Kagame's view right at the outset and continuing up to the present was that Gachacha was a sort of soft version of justice. That yes, it was fine to involve the population so heavily in the process, but, but something stricter, something more fierce than that was required. I've interviewed Kagame uh, on several occasions and he says each time that he, he's always been extremely opposed to this process. Others within the Rwandan government say that Back in, in the late 90s, Kagame actually preferred just to send the troops into the prisons and simply strafe the genocide detainees to, to kill them in, in one fell swoop. 
the emergence of gachacha in Rwanda was very, very slow. And it also derived very heavily from many members of, of the government of the day that their experiences back in Uganda in the 1980s. The RPF in Rwanda comes out of a rebel movement in, in, in Uganda. They fought with the national resistance movement led by, by the now Ugandan president Museveni. And in the NRM bush war in Uganda, there were these ideas of the importance of popular justice and popular ownership. And so many of the Rwandan leaders picked up the language and the set of ideas that they had employed in Uganda and infused these into the creation of, of Gachacha in Rwanda. And we can, there's a separate presentation to be given on the importance of Marxism at the, at the heart of many of these debates in Rwanda and Uganda. Because basically the leaders in the region all share a common heritage. They all were trained under Frelimo in, in the training camps in Mozambique. Most of them were educated um, under Marxist professors at the University of Dar es Salaam. So we're actually talking about presidents and military leaders who, who come from a very similar place. And much of the language and much of the rhetoric from that background is, is infused into the, the, the Gachacha process. From 2001 up to the present, Gachacha has been revised constantly. There's always been tweaking with the system, both in a legal sense and in a political sense. In 2006, when I interviewed Kagami, it was very clear within the Rwandan government that basically Gachacha was in some ways doing too good a job. It was identifying so many new genocide suspects in the community that suddenly the system was creaking beneath the burden of, of accountability. And so something else had to be done. The option that had been adopted in 2001 was no longer particularly useful. And the Rwandan government almost came full circle and started to consider whether an amnesty, particularly for low-level genocide perpetrators, again, would be useful. Rwanda essentially said no to that. Again, they came back to many of the same debates as had occurred in, in the late 1990s. And the compromise was, in essence, to use much more lenient sentences. Not to give an amnesty, to, to, to recognise uh, that some degree of punishment was, was still required, but to basically use community service for the vast majority of, of, of uh, suspects who were put through the Gachacha process. There's been enormous uh, senses of anger and dissatisfaction amongst Rwandan survivors in particular, that this is the way that Gachacha has gone. But the government's argument was, well, there's nothing else we can do. I mean, Gachacha simply can't deal with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cases in the way that it may have in 2002 or 2003. So what we see here in, in this kind of, I guess, schematic depiction of, of transitional justice debates in Rwanda is that this, this has not been a linear process. Right from the outset, the decisions that were made about transitional justice were about political compromise. Amnesty was rejected as a possibility at the beginning of the process, but when the full burden of accountability became clear, then amnesty was, was reconsidered and rejected again. And what Rwanda now ends up with today is a form of what we might call compromised justice. So this, this has kind of ebbed and flowed and, and taken turns at almost every stage, circled back on itself, and now we have uh, a, a very, very messy situation in Rwanda, I would argue. In terms of Uganda, and I'll do this much more quickly than I, than I did Rwanda, as we've already heard, Uganda has, has used the Amnesty Act of 2000, uh, basically for, for the last 10 years, to try and reintegrate LRA rebels who, who've come back from the bush. And it's important to highlight at the outset that in the case of Uganda, the amnesty very much comes out of a popular movement. 
there was there was an enormous degree of popular consultation in the late 1990s and the early 2000s indicating that that people were frustrated with the way that various conflicts in Uganda were unfolding and so civil society groups religious groups and also even a groundswell simply from the the unrepresented population of, of IDPs in the camps were pushing very very strongly for an amnesty so I think it's important to recognize that this is a process that had an enormous amount of support at, at, at the outset. But over time, things have changed, and there's been growing discontent, growing popular discontent with the amnesty, particularly because an amnesty in Uganda does not require combatants coming back from the bush to admit to anything that they ever did. They simply have to say, yes, we were involved in the conflict, we renounce our involvement in the conflict, and we want to be reintegrated back into the community. So there's been a growing sense in Uganda over, over many years now that, that the amnesty doesn't provide sufficient truth, and there's also been a growing sense that it should deliver some degree of compensation to the victims of the crimes. And this has been a very controversial point in Uganda because the, those who are reintegrated from the LRA receive a reintegration package. So in essence, they receive material goods when they come back in from the bush, but the victims essentially get nothing. So this largely explains why there's been so much discontent with the process. And in response to that, between 2003 and 2005, there was a great deal of advocacy around the idea of using local rituals to basically fill the gap that the Amnesty Commission had left. Was it possible to do a form of reintegration in a much more ad hoc way that would provide a degree of truth, so there would be confession built into the process, and a very clear sense of perpetrators' families having to compensate victims' families. So could these processes be used to try and do what the amnesty process had not? Now, things got very out of hand, I would argue, when the Juba peace talks came along, and various aspects of this transitional justice process got hijacked by various parties, and we heard very polarised debates, international versus local justice, amnesty versus accountability, peace versus justice. And this actually, I think, was a very unfortunate uh, period because we were missing much of the nuance of what was going on here. And I think one of the crucial things that got lost in all of these debates was the push towards local rituals in northern Uganda preceded the Juba peace talks by at least three years. And the reason that there was an interest in using local forms of cleansing and reintegration wasn't as a form of ad hoc amnesty or as a form of ad hoc impunity. It was geared right from the outset as a form of accountability, which the amnesty process had, had not delivered. And I think this, this got largely missed in, in, in many of those discussions. So again, in Uganda, we get a sense that, again, this has not been a linear process at all. Many actors have had different motivations and have changed their mind over time. And again, we now get a very nuanced and a very subtle view. I'm going to skip my second point because as I often do, I've, I've gone over time. And I just want to say a couple of things on my final point. And it's about the role of, of international norm entrepreneurs. And I think this comes back to some of the things that we were talking about this morning. The, the role of, I guess, civil society groups internationally, um, the, the, the role of, of lawyers and, and advocates. The justice cascade as a theory has, actually has a lot of positive things to say about these norm entrepreneurs. 
sick inking much of her work praises groups like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch. We even heard this morning about the role of groups like the Coalition for the ICC and other groups like this in terms of spreading the word and spreading the importance of, of accountability. I, I wonder to a large extent whether the importance of norm entrepreneurs, especially international actors, has been more emphasised in Latin America than in Africa. Because I wonder whether there's actually been much more collaboration between international and domestic norm entrepreneurs in that setting. And again, I throw this question out there because I don't know enough about Latin America and I'd, I'd like people's feedback on this. Why international actors have been able to, I guess, get their ideas on the table much more clearly than they have in Africa. In Africa, it, and I'm, I'm talking very generally here, but I think there's much more scepticism of the role of outsiders and, and there's much less collaboration between international and, and domestic actors. I would agree with, with Jeff Dancy's point this morning that there is, I think, a sense of solidarity that has been built up amongst international norm entrepreneurs, human rights groups, UN agencies and, and international criminal institutions themselves. There's some variations between these groups and what they advocate, but I think there's an enormous amount of, of consistency. And that consistency is that in opposing amnesty and impunity, two concepts which these groups often conflate, they actually hew to a very narrow and what I would call orthodox view of what accountability must look like. And that orthodox view essentially is that international criminal justice is the only way that we can do accountability. What this has meant in the Rwandan context is that groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and various UN agencies have opposed the Gachacha process from day one. They've seen this as an illegitimate form of accountability, which they argue will contravene all manner of due process norms. But if we look very carefully at the reports and the analyses from these particular groups, we find that this is based on almost no empirical evidence whatsoever. There's almost no reference to concrete hearings that have taken place in Rwanda. There's very little interview material coming from the ground. And it's very difficult, I think, to conclude anything other than this is rhetoric. This is a form of international criminal legal barracking that has very, very little to say about the reality in Rwanda today. In essence, this has been an argument from international organisations that I would argue is too easy. This is a cheap advocacy of a particular concept. The question in Rwanda is, what do you do when you have hundreds of thousands of perpetrators? Yes, it's fine to advocate the use of UN tribunals, but that's at best going to deal with maybe 40 or 50 individuals. What about the hundreds of thousands of others who have been involved in the conflict? Well, I can tell you what most of these norm entrepreneurs think of that. Very interestingly, perhaps paradoxically, they advocate an amnesty. They advocate an amnesty for the vast bulk of the perpetrators involved in the conflict. And what's very, very interesting is we've seen this explicitly from Human Rights Watch. It's been insinuated uh, by Amnesty International. And my good friend Lars Waldorf, uh, who was previously of Human Rights Watch in Kigali, with whom I debated at SOAS about the chapter the other week, said it in a public domain. Rwanda should have just let the bulk of the, the other detainees go. There should have been accountability for the top and an amnesty for those down below. So we have a very peculiar situation in Rwanda where 
these norm entrepreneurs who backed advocacy or who backed accountability so strongly, when pushed on the reality of the situation in Rwanda, actually begin to advocate an amnesty. So it's very, very peculiar. In Uganda, we've seen very, very similar discussions, and, and, and I'll, I'll end on this. What we saw in the Ugandan case, particularly at the time of the Juba peace talks, was that groups like Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, and, and also the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights were sidelined completely in those peace negotiations. Because in, in the words of, of one of the uh, Ugandan uh, diplomats at the talks, these groups were simply purveyors of a, of a sense of legal fanaticism, or legal fundamentalism was the term he used. They had a very, very narrow, a very, very thin notion of what accountability may mean. And much of the advocacy of those groups was simply to say, well, all of these discussions of the Amnesty Act in Uganda, local rituals, this is simply a thinly disguised form of impunity. When in actual fact, as we've already seen, there was a great deal else going on in these domestic discussions. These situations were much more nuanced than that. And in relation to the, the local rituals in particular, international norm entrepreneurs got it completely wrong. Because as I've already argued, the impulse for the advocacy behind those processes was not impunity. It itself was a dissatisfaction with the Amnesty Act and a desire to put something else in place. Now, a savvier international norm campaign would have actually seen that there were potential allies in Uganda who also had concerns with the amnesty process in the country and that something else could be done. What I would argue, if we look at the Rwandan case and the Ugandan case, is that actually international advocates of accountability have done an enormous disservice to the cause of justice. They talk the language of accountability, they talk the language of justice, but because their approach is so narrow, they've actually denigrated very important and very complicated domestic accountability processes, which I would argue ultimately actually respond much more effectively to the problems that those countries face. We have a perverse situation at the moment where those who say that they support justice, I would say actually are undermining it by the day. Thanks very much.